0: Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just raise your hand and one of the guys in the back can get you one. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And if, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew is what we call one of the, it's one of the Gospels. It's the story of Jesus and Jesus' teachings. And uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Follow along with me as I read these six verses. Judge not that you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to his word this morning. Father, we come to you again in prayer. We thank you for the, this time for us to, uh, to to come together as a community, as a family, brothers and sisters who have been bought by your, the blood of your Son to receive an inheritance far beyond our imagination. And God, we are uh, as pilgrims journeying through a strange land, and often the uh, truths that we read about and hear on Sundays and discuss in house communities don't always seem to, uh, to be vivid in our lives. It's hard to see some of these things. It's, sometimes it's hard to believe that we're actually part of this great kingdom when things don't feel great. Yet God, we come to you today uh, in, uh, as, as children trusting our daddy who has given us this, this promise that this kingdom is here, it is alive, it is active, and even though we don't always feel like it, we are citizens of this kingdom. And so God, as citizens, we want to hear the voice of our King, and this morning He tells us to not judge. Help us to know what that means. Speak to us this morning. Let us see Christ as the fulfillment of all that we're looking for. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I do want to turn your attention to those first words right there in that passage. Judge not that you be judged. Look at where Jesus places this in this sermon. So chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon addressed to his followers, or we could say to Christians. And the entire time, he sort of has, in the corner of his eye, the Pharisees, right there. He, there. There's sort of this, this overtone throughout this entire sermon uh, that he is in some ways speaking to the Pharisees. And so now we have two chapters. We've just finished two chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6 of kingdom life. So these are the, uh, the norms of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom, the, the commands of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to live in this kingdom. This is what life as a Christian now is and, and then will be. And then he's, it's, it's almost as if all of that sort of culminates here in these first six verses of chapter 7 with him saying, now be careful with all of this said, be careful that you don't become like one of the Pharisees. Like be careful that you don't, through trying to be obedient and looking at the commands and trying to follow Jesus, become a Pharisee. Judgmental. So, do not judge lest you be judged. The Pharisees were bound up in their rules, in their traditions. They were constantly looking at the external, the outward things, trying to judge the spiritual natures, nature of the heart, um, pointing out the, the Quick to point out the failure of others, where people are wrong, where people are doing wrong actions, the problems in Israel. They were constantly nagging Jesus and his disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath and other things. I mean that, that was the Pharisees, and we, we sort of get that. Like when we think of the Pharisees, I mean you, know, you don't hardly even have to have any church background to get this. When we think of the Pharisees, we already get it. Okay, they're the judgmental ones, right? Everybody say amen. The Pharisees, yeah, they're, they're, they're the judgmental ones. They're the ones that are constantly getting on to Jesus and his disciples. They're the ones that, I mean, we think of the, 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 the prayer where the Pharisee is standing next to the tax collector and, and uh, the Pharisee prays and says, God, thank you for not making me like this evil tax collector over here. Then the tax collector, we get a glimpse into his prayer and he says, oh God, I'm a great sinner. Have mercy on me. Jesus says the tax collector is the one who is righteous, not that judgmental Pharisee, right? We get that. What Jesus is also saying, and this is what I want you to hear, is that judgmentalism is not something that's like just a a, a problem specific to the Pharisees. So what Jesus saw in his own ministry was that his own followers, those calling themselves followers of Christ, we're also prone to judgmentalism. So Jesus goes into a Samaritan village. And the Samaritan village doesn't accept them. Moving on, walking out of the village, James and John, some of his, a couple of his disciples, upset and angry, say, hey, um, by the way, did you want us to call down fire and destroy them? Because like, we can make that happen like now if you just give us the word and Jesus is scratching his head, you guys just don't get it. You see, those with the best intentions, intentions of following in the footsteps of Jesus, those with the intentions of listening to the Sermon on the Mount and saying, I want to see this in my life, are prone to judgmentalism. At every turn, we are prone to look down on others, to call down fire from heaven Nobody is immune to it. There's no amount of knowledge that we can gain. For that matter, there's no amount of ignorance that we can sort of retain that keeps us from being judgmental. A few years ago, uh, shortly after I graduated from college, there was somewhat of a reactionary movement within uh, the Christian faith that I was sort of swept up into. Um, Many folks who came out of uh, what you you might call Christian fundamentalist backgrounds, uh, backgrounds where there there were a lot of rules, do's and don'ts, what you wear, not allowed to drink beer, can't smoke cigars, whatever these sort of things were that we decided to focus on. Then there was this reactionary movement to that where a bunch of people found Um, it's okay to do some of these things. It's okay to have a beer. It's okay to have a stogie. Whatever you, you know, it's okay to not wear a tie on Sunday. And then it kind of drifts and moves into other things. Theological realm. Reaction to conservative theology. Reaction to things that we've been taught. And then this is what we would do, okay? I want you to get a picture of this. Um, We would sit around and like... Small groups and large groups uh, liberated and drinking a beer like free in Christ and smash those judgmental fundamentalists. That was all we talked about was how wrong they are. Another friend of mine coming out of a very strict Christian conservative background Uh, tired of sort of the rules, tired of being looked down on for various things. And so she goes and she finds a, uh, uh, I'm just going to say a a hipster church. All right, I love you hipsters. And um, uh, after about a a year of attending the church, uh, is just in tears, broken, looked down on, because she's driving a car to the worship service, instead of riding her bicycle. Oh, you who destroy the environment. How can you call yourself a Christian? Do, do you guys see how like nobody's immune to this? I mean, at every turn. So we react from this thing, and then we find ourselves judgmental in a different way. What we find, and I've seen this, I mean, I, so I'm 32 years old. No secret there. I know you guys all thought I was 25. 32, I never would have put that on them. Thirty-two years old. So you know, I've been in ministry for about ten years now, and so I've seen a couple of these moves, a couple of these shifts. And every time there's a shift in our church, in our thinking, in our evangelical world, there's it always is followed by a sense of judgmentalism, superiority, looking down the nose at those who don't don't get it. So we 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 are in a season of doubt, and we we are judgmental of those who have strong beliefs, or we have strong beliefs, and we studied a lot, and then we become judgmental of those who have doubts. We fall in love with theology and the doctrines of grace, robust, reformed theology, and become judgmental of those who are of theologically different stripes. Or we are theologically weak, and we really don't care about theology, and we are judgmental of those who do. You see, at every turn, the human heart is prone to judgmentalism, to lift ourselves up, and in a superiority complex, to look down our nose at other people. I could personally uh, make, make Paul's statement on contentment, my, I could reverse it and turn it into my own personal testimony of judgmentalism. I have learned to be judgmental, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be a fundamentalist, and I know what it is to be a liberal. I have learned the secret of being judgmental in every and any situation, whether believing or doubting, whether rule-following or rebellious. In all circumstances, I have learned to be judgmental. None of us are immune to what Jesus is getting at to hear. You see, I used to read the Sermon on the Mount and specifically something like this. And, and I would sort of take it as um, good advice for today. Like, how do I live my life? Saved by grace, yeah, I get that. But now what do I do? How do I live my life? Okay, do not be judgmental. Okay, fine, I will work really hard, and I will not be judgmental. And I will, man, I will become the, the least judgmental person out there, and I will be able to point out to you everybody who, who is judgmental. Amen? You see what happens? You see, as we're studying this sermon, the more and more I read the sermon, the more I'm reading, reading it differently. The more I'm realizing that I think Jesus' intent here is to show us what we actually cannot do. So, this command, do not judge, in some ways is like light shed in a dungeon and it reveals the chains that have always existed that we didn't know were there. Do not judge. I'm trying not to judge. And every time I try, I become judgmental. Jesus speaks to us today. This brings up another good question. Does this mean, then, that we never judge ever? You see, usually when we hear someone quote this verse, what's the context? Do not judge lest you be judged. It's like everybody's life verse, right? Like you don't even have to know where Genesis is in the Bible and you've memorized that verse. All right? Guys and girls that don't like Jesus. That's their life verse. Judge not lest you be judged. As in, don't talk to me about that. You can't look at, you can't say anything about this, okay? Judge not lest you be judged, man. It it's used uh not as an opportunity for us to self-examine ourselves and, and ask, are we the judgmental types? It's used rather as an opportunity to say, or, or as an excuse um, to not undergo spiritual evalu- evaluation, to keep an arm's length distance from anybody who offers accountability, um, discipline, uh, strong reminders of the gospel, and we say, no, you're not allowed to do that. Judge not lest you be judged. You're not allowed. To. So are, are we to never judge? Now, immediate problem that we face here is this. We are told elsewhere, very specifically in the Bible, that we are to judge. Like, literally, it says, judge, all right, as a command. So what's going on? Are, are, are we to judge or are we not to judge? Let's explore that just briefly here, and this will help us understand what Jesus is is getting at. In verse 6, do not give to dogs, he says. Now, let's just stop right there. Everybody say, hold up. Did he just call somebody dog? Is he calling somebody a pig? Like, that sounds like a statement of judgment to me. Do not judge lest you be judged. Oh, and by the way, there are dogs listening to this. So what is our criteria for judging? How do we understand what right judging is? Um, 2 Timothy, Paul calls out two dudes by name. Imanius, Philetus. These men are teaching uh, doctrine that is spreading, he says, like gangrene. I mean, we are not supposed to call out names whatever we do, right? We can say, hey, there's bad teaching in this world, but by all means, don't say a name. Well, Paul doesn't. He calls out names. Like, it's, it's destructive, gangrene kind of teaching, and you guys need to watch out for this sort of stuff. 1 Corinthians, the church is rebuked for not judging. As the early church developed... Church historians would say that excommunication in the early church was as vital to the health of the church as was preaching. So Jesus himself actually helps us. In John chapter 7, verse 24, he says this. He says, Do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what is, that's our question right now, what is right judgment? First Corinthians 5, 15. This is our foundation. For right judgment. What have I to do, it says, with judging outsiders, Paul says. Is it not those inside the church whom you you are to judge? So here Paul is reprimanding the church in Corinth for not judging an immoral brother who's been in ongoing sin. And his foundation is this. He's part of the church. Like Matthew 18, keys to the kingdom handed the, to the church, there, so there's a sense where the church has been handed an authority uh, to, to, to judge. And so here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, I've got nothing to do with judging outsiders, all right? Um, whatever's happening downtown, whatever uh, is happening here, there, Disney World, whatever it might be, like, that's not my place. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to judge those that are not part of the church. Um, We are, he says, to judge those within the church. So the church has been given a sense of authority to judge those who profess to be Christians. Now, even with that said, that doesn't immediately answer this problem or this question because Jesus here says don't judge your brother. So he's talking about someone inside of the church. So there are ways then that we are to judge and there are ways we are not to judge. I want to do this. I want to give you three goals of right judging before we get into what Jesus is getting at here. Goal number one of right judging. Romans 14. Right judging promotes the gospel. So in Romans 14 it says this, do not judge in such a way that would cause uh, there to be a stumbling block between your brother and the good news of Jesus Christ. So good judging, right judging, is judging in such a way that promotes the gospel. It's, It's just bathed in the grace of Jesus Christ. It sees the person that you are working with or talking to as someone who Christ died for, who Christ intimately loved, and it's promoting then the gospel in their life. It's not a stumbling block to them. Goal number two, right judging uh, protects the integrity of the gospel. So this is what Paul's doing in 2 Timothy where he's calling out two dudes by name. What he's doing is he's protecting the integrity of the gospel. Another way we could say this is he's protecting the saints. He's saying, look, this is the gospel. We're promoting the gospel in all that we do and say, in the way that we encourage and love each other, in the way that we discipline each other, but also in the way that we protect you you against the false teaching that can pervert the gospel. So, there's a sense of protecting the integrity of the good news of Jesus Christ. So in our context, if we were to ever discipline, say, for a matter of um, theological divisiveness, what we're doing is we are protecting the church, the, the congregation, from teaching that can destroy the gospel work in their life. And then we're also protecting the integrity of the gospel itself, the message of the cross. Uh, goal number three is this, convic- conviction of sin. So this is the prophet Nathan. Nathan pointing the finger at David. And he's saying this, you are the man. Now, did Nathan say that in love, promoting the gospel? Of course. Nathan loved David. And the way that he uh, quote-unquote judged David, brought David to repentance and Promoted the gospel in his life. The grace of Jesus Christ. Goals of right judging. So from there, let's craft a definition then of what Jesus is getting at here where he says, judge not that you be judged. So Jesus himself again helps us. John chapter 7 verse 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So the Pharisees would judge by appearances. They they, they were looking at the outside, they would look at external things, they would disfigure their faces during times of fasting to make sure that they looked spiritual, and if you didn't look spiritual, well, they would judge you, they would condemn you. So they're making eternal assessments, spiritual condemnation, based on your Facebook status. Are we tracking here? Based on external things, what you look like, the things that you're just sort of saying off the top of your head. So let's let's work with this here. The judging that Jesus is talking about here, um, spiritual or eternal condemnation, based on external appearances. Now, why do I say spiritual and eternal condemnation? Look at Romans chapter fourteen. I'm going to throw up on the screen for you, verse ten. He says this. Why? do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So we will all stand. So why do you judge? Because don't you realize that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God? Like there is a sense of spiritual evaluation that is going to happen to every single one of us, not by one another, but by him who sees beyond the appearance, by by him who sees... The heart. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess to God, so then each of us will give an account to God. So judgmentalism, the spirit of condemnation, then comes with this strong reminder that you will stand before God. When you are judging, in the sinful, wrong sense of the word. Let's call it judgmentalism. You are playing God. You are seeing with your eyes what you can see and you are making spiritual evaluations of that person's soul. A spirit of condemnation. This has nothing to do, to do with believing the gospel. It has nothing to do with believing that Jesus died for this person, that God loves this person, Jesus' blood covers this person's sin. Nothing to do with trying to keep a stumbling block from, that per, from landing in between that person and the good news of Jesus Christ. No, it's, it's, all, it's unhelpful condemnation that does not seek to build anyone up except yourself. Now, what's the theology behind this? Look at verse 2. We have a theological basis here that he gives us. Judge not that you be judged, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he's essentially asking this question. Look, do you really want justice in your life? Like, do you really... Want to to be judged with the same standard by which you are judging this brother? Like, what if God judged you with that standard? We are looking at appearances. We are looking at at the the maybe something that's very vivid, something that's very outward, and we have this spirit of condemnation that burns with anger toward that individual. He's saying, "Look." You really want justice? Like, look at your own heart. What if if God judged you with that same spirit and you stood before God with no grace? How would you fare? Look, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. I wouldn't fare very well. Like, right now, in the middle of this sermon, if my heart stops beating and I die, and if I were to stand before God without grace, things wouldn't look so good for me. I need grace because I know my own heart. And this is what Jesus wants us to see. The theology behind this command then is rooted in radical grace. The grace of God. The grace of God in Jesus Christ that says... uh, that you are not accepted, you do not find favor before God because of the things that you do or don't do. You find favor before God because of what Christ did for you on your behalf, and as he went to the cross, his blood covered all of your guilt. And so he wants us to see that grace. He wants us to be reminded here of that judgment day when we stand before God and he accepts us And he says, yeah, you are mine, you're beautiful, you're righteous because of him. That's grace. He wants us to be reminded of the grace of God so now we can look at our brothers and our sisters with grace. So why do we judge? Why are we prone to this? Look at verses 3 through 5. He says this, he gives kind of an illustration. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye?" but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you got the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There are three reasons that we are prone to judgmentalism that I want to sort of extract from that analogy that he gives us. Number one, first one is this. We are constantly prone toward looking at others as opposed to self, looking outward at the sins, at the happenings, the successes, and the failures of others, as opposed to looking at our own hearts. This passage is not meant to be read the way we typically use it. We usually use this to turn it around and focus it on others, what others are not allowed to do to us. That wasn't the intent. The intent was that it would drive us to look inward and to say, is there a log in my eye? Is there a massive sin issue in my life that I am blind to? Matthew Henry says this, it is as strange, he says, that a man can be a sinful, in a sinful, miserable condition and not be aware of it as it is that a man should have a beam in his eye and not consider it. But the God of this world blinds their minds. So if somebody walked in here in the back door right now and had a log coming out of their eye, they didn't realize it was there. Matthew Henry says, that's strange. And that's as strange as if we have sin in our life that we're blind to. It's glaring to others. So the first reason we are judgmental is because we look to others. We're constantly looking away from ourselves at the failure and the successes of others. Number two, it's because we carry guilt. We We carry this weight of this log. Guilt the size of a log in your eye. Listen, there is no quicker way for us to become judgmental people than to have massive guilt of sin sitting on us in our Lives. We have a beam that has blasted out our eye socket and we feel it. And we, we, we might know it's there and not know what to do with it. And so what do we do? We find everybody we can find who has at least a speck in their eye. So we can point to them, direction away from us, and say, well, yeah, but look at that guy. He has something in his eye too. We're constantly looking to justify our own sin through finding sin in other people. This is the dude who might say, confronted with sin, and he says, Yeah, but everybody else is doing it. I'm not the only one that is struggling with this sin issue. Like, there's got to be somebody else that has a spec, has something. In their eye. And so we're constantly turning attention away from ourselves because of our sin and the guilt that we feel, and hoping that nobody really looks at us and examines us, and turning the attention to that other brother. The third reason we are judgmental is because we are focused on temporary things, we're focused on external things. The analogy of the eye right here in 3, 5, and 6. It reminds us of chapter six: the, the lamp of the eye is the lamp of the body. What are you looking at? Treasures in heaven or treasures on earth? You guys remember this? Are is, are you? What are your What are your eyes? What are you gazing upon? Are you gazing upon the eternal things of God? Are you gazing upon the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ? Are you gazing upon the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God? Or are you gazing upon temporal, physical stuff? And so in the ancient world, someone who was gazing upon physical stuff, they would say that person has bad eyesight. They're seeing the wrong thing. They're not seeing eternal things. Well, this analogy brings that back to mind. A log in the eye would be bad eyesight, correct? Focusing, unable to see, rather, Unable to see the spiritual things, the eternal wonders of God, and focusing merely on appearances. And so then we become judgmental because all we can see are appearances. All we can see are the things that people say, the things that people do. And we can't see the heart. We can't see the spiritual. Final exhortation here. Look at verse 6. Jesus then says this what seems to be strange. I I wrestled with this verse all week. Verse 6, Do not give then to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, where did that come from? What is Jesus' point? Do not be judgmental. Log into your eye. You've got a big problem. Deal with it. Now, don't give to dogs what is holy. Now, in the ancient world, dogs, or specifically in Judaism, dogs were seen as unclean animals as well as pigs, alright? So, you dog lovers out there right now, don't get up and storm out angry because Jesus is preaching against dogs. This has been used by many a cat lover to down the precious canine. He's he's referring here to an animal that is known as something that is unclean. So we're not going to give to dogs the, the, the things that are holy, the things that are set apart. Well, what's set apart? What is holy? What we find is the message right here. The truths of the gospel. So here's what I think Jesus is saying, and I want you to track with me. I think Jesus is Corner of his eye, there's the Pharisees. Not you guys. Just a little disclaimer. We'll go over here. Corner of his eye, there's the Pharisees. Do not give to, to those who are unclean, or let's put it this way, to those who do not have ears to hear. Do not give to them the precious truths of the gospel of the faith, because if they do not have ears to hear, it will only become fuel for judgmentalism. Meaning this, if we are judgmental, log in the eye, we do not have ears to hear the gospel, we are focused on ourselves, and then we are trained in the doctrines of grace. We're trained in robust theology. We're trained in biblical stuff. It becomes fuel for judgmentalism. Let me try to illustrate this. Tim, Tim Keller tells a story about a young guy who uh, was in, I believe, inner varsity with Keller at one point, and um, he was, this young dude was a sort of a womanizer, just one woman after another, after another, after another, after another, and started attending these Bible studies, and was converted, heard the gospel, and became a Christian, and um, after uh, some time, sort of rose through the ranks of their Bible studies, and he began leading Bible studies, And uh, it wasn't long before they saw a pattern that was developing in this man's new ministry. One Bible study, after another, after another, after another, after another, moving, moving, moving. And behind him, what he was leaving was broken, messed up, hurting relationships. And what Keller said he began to realize was that all of, all of that stuff he was doing with w- women before, really, it wasn't, s- sex wasn't a the problem there. The problem there was this, this, this deep-rooted desire to be above, to be better than, to control, to dominate. And when he was given then doctrine, he was given then the teachings of the word, You see, they became fuel for his fodder, for the fire of judgmentalism that had always been there. They became his new tools to set himself up above other people, to look down his nose at other people, and to control and to dominate. This is is how deeply the spirit of judgmentalism has infected us. We can we can gain knowledge. We can read more books. I can give you more books, as if I haven't given you given you enough. Amen. Yet without this, without something happening, um, all it does is it it builds us up, and turns us into better judgmental people. So, we can work hard to try to change some of these things. We can, we can read this and be like, man, um, I don't want to be like the Pharisee. You know, there's the Pharisee praying, God, thank you for not making me like the tax collector. I don't want to be like that. I'm going to work really hard and i'm going to side with the tax collectors and we can do that well and we can stand with the prostitute we can stand with the tax collector stand with the sinner that the religious look down on and then we find ourselves praying god thank you for not making me like that pharisee over there while the pharisee his prayer has turned god i am a wicked sinner i need your mercy What do we do? What do we do when we realize that at every turn in our lives and in our spiritual sort of learning and development we find judgmentalism creeping in? We can do one of two things. One, we can ignore it. We can say, well, that's not me. That's not applicable to my life. I'm not a judgmental person. I don't struggle with that. Everybody else does. Not my issue. Um, I, can tell you, I can give you three names if you need some people to talk to you right now. Um, or we can, we can let this hit us in the way that I believe it was intended to hit us. That we may look inward, that we may evaluate ourselves, that we may put our hands to our eyes and say, do I have a log there? Is there something that is blinding me to this judgmental spirit, the spirit of condemnation that exists within me. And then we look at Jesus' command. What do we do with the log? So we remove it. We take it out. Now, um, I don't know about you, if, if, if I saw somebody with a log in their eye, um. I don't even think I would want to get close to touching it. Like, I'd be like, yo, you know, I'd be like finding, I'd point to Daniel and be like, he's the doctor here. Um, go to him. Like, I'm not, I'm not touching that thing. Like, your, your, your eye is messed up. So I, I actually think that there is, this is actually somewhat humorous here. Jesus saying, log in your eye, so just like take it out, as if you'll be okay. As if there won't be like a, maybe a gaping hole left. This is like telling the blind to see. You're blind. Well, see, I can't. I'm blind. This is like telling the dead to raise, to get up. I'm dead. Well, I can't even say that because I'm dead. Do you see the problem here? Well, here's, here's, here's the answer. Look at it. Look at verse 7. Strategic placement, I believe, of this of this promise. Ask and it will be given to you. Ask and it will be given to you. What's impossible for man is possible for God. The the gospel comes to us as news that is proclaimed of something that has happened for us, something that has been done for us and is happening for us on our behalf. The gospel is not try harder, get rid of that sin issue, and then you're going to be okay. That's called moralism. The gospel comes to us as news that is proclaimed and it is good news indeed. So the gospel says that Jesus is sort of like the superhero uh, eye surgeon who can actually remove the log and put new eyes where they, the, the, your old eyes used to be. Who can open the eyes of the blind. Who can raise the dead. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How does He do it? Through His life that He lived, He had every right to look down on those around Him. On everybody around Him. God in this world came into this world, be took on flesh, and the world knew Him not. If anybody had a right to look down their nose at someone else. It was Christ himself, yet he never sinned in judgmentalism. When he was being spit on and mocked, asked to speak, he didn't defend himself, didn't say a word, was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and there finally uttered some words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, friends, the righteousness that Christ had is a righteousness that is given to us. It's a gift. Jesus did not judge. And it's gifted to us. His goodness is gifted to us. And our guilt of judging was forever removed on the cross. Guys, this this command comes to us not as in a sense of moralism to, to try, try harder. It comes to us as people who are, who are in a dungeon. And we've been down there and we, we thought, this is the funny thing, we thought all along we were free. Like it's been dark. We didn't feel the chains. We thought we were free. The gospel, or I'm sorry, this command, and I can say all of the commands of God, they come to us in such a way that it sheds light over here, and it says, here's where the good stuff is. Here's, Do not judge. Come over. And we're like, all along we thought we could do that. We've been just chilling. And then we see it. We hear the command, do not judge. And then we say, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go there. And then we try to do it, and we move. And for the first time, we feel the chains. We realize all of a sudden that we are bound to our flesh. The metal, the cold metal of the the handcuffs. It's there. We realize and we, we can't go there. Now moralism says this. Moralism says keep on coming. Like just try harder. Like, no, just don't judge. Just stop it. Have faith trust more stop judging and you and you you try and you try and you can't and you're tired and you're weary the gospel comes to us as news that is proclaimed that is good news and it says this Christ did not judge and his not judging was enough for us and when we hear that we 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 see the light we see the sin And the command comes. Just get up. We believe the Gospel. And the chains are gone. And we are set free. And I rose and I went forth and I followed Thee, amazing love. How can it be that Thou, Christ, my God, would die for me? You see, friends, we have to know grace. We have to see grace. And now that we know grace, and now that we know the love of God in Jesus Christ our Savior, then we can carefully help our brother remove the speck from their eye because we know grace because we now, we've, we've met love. And when the world sees this kind of grace and this kind of love for one another, they will be amazed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you continue to remind us of grace. Lord, let us never be driven by a sense of uh, moralism, trying to do better, trying to believe that if we can just try harder that we could actually break out of these chains. Let us realize that the commands have come so that we may realize that we are bound, so that we may be convicted of our sin, so that we may look to Christ and say, Help. And God, we thank You for the fact that Christ helps. May we... uh, Follow him in believing the gospel, in standing, follow, uh, go, going forth, following him. Lord, uh, there are times where there, uh, there is a speck in someone's eye, in my own eye, and I need help in removing that. God, there's people in this, in this room that have specks and they need help in removing those specks. God, may we know the grace and love of Christ so that we can help one another in grace and love. So that we may be the church to one another. Give us your grace. Give us your strength. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.